Welcome back to the How to Ascend podcast, home to my original short stories. I'm Chris, and this episode is some old school stuff. I'm talking middle school, 20 years ago type of stuff. Remember the kinds of silly things that people used to go crazy over that seem so innocuous and innocent now? Trading cards, beanie babies, dial-up internet. And that's when this story is based. However, we have to go even further back for a bit more context. According to the Corpus Christi Caller Times in November of 1975, Robstown, Texas, was under siege by a winged menace. This was more than a peeved-off pigeon, though. As the locals told it, it lived in a forested grove on the west side of town, was between two and six feet tall, with a human face and both human and animal feet. It would only fly around, but it unnerved the locals. It was theorized to be everything and anything, including an escaped pet bird, a non-native Andean condor, and a hoax. Accounts include two San Benito policemen who reported seeing a bird with a 10 to 12 foot wingspan over a lagoon. A man even allegedly came face to face with it. Alverico Cuajardo of Brownsville, Texas, heard a noise outside his trailer. He met with a four foot tall bird with a long beak and eyes as big as silver dollars, its face more back than bird. He told a reporter, that animal is not from this world. Three months after the initial events, a large dummy was reported to police, and a picture of it was circulated, effectively killing all rumors and further sightings. What it was feared to be is the subject of this story. Funny thing about the things we fear, when you speak of them in hushed tones at midnight, whether they're real or not is irrelevant. What matters is if it gets you. This episode is called, Not Worth the Paper They're Printed On. Back in 1997, children's trading cards printed with imaginary cartoon animals were so popular that they managed to pierce the protective bubble of our border town. American pop culture had much to overcome to reach our town. A two-hour drive to the nearest big city, the language barrier of a predominantly Spanish-speaking community, and a culture that was suspect of the new or unknown. These cards were different. They were coveted by both adults and children, which only added to their allure. Within their layers of pressed paper, there was value and power. I'm talking hundreds of dollars for a rare card, which is a lot to some Mexican kids from the South Side, where a splurge was a fun-sized bag of flaming Hot Cheetos. Their actual worth lay not in what could be gained by them, though, but what could be taken. Cesar Ruiz was the most prolific collector of these cards, at least within my middle school walls. I'd known Cesar since sixth grade, when his gifted and talented class joined mine. He was a goofy kid, with bright eyes and a smile filled with braces and teeth that erupted at unusual angles. Cesar lived in his grandmother's trailer and never saw much of his mom, who worked the night shift at the nearby candle factory. She compensated for her absence by supplying him with more trading cards than any kid would know what to do with. Cesar was a doting caretaker of his assets and kept his collection in vinyl sleeves, sorted in binders by name, rarity, and dollar amount, with several dedicated to duplicates. What luck, then, that Pablo, Moises, and I found ourselves in possession of one of those tomes, and unsupervised, no less. When Moises and I arrived, Pablo quickly ushered us into his room. We pored over the pages for hours, marveling at this man-made wonder, while silently auditing their worth in our heads. Cesar's got so many, Pablo whispered in his pubescent, scratchy baritone. He's not going to notice a few missing. No seas hot away. Don't be gay. 
Moises scolded me, digging an elbow into my ribs. Our developing minds didn't fully grasp what that insult meant, only that we didn't want to be associated with it. It had many degrees of use, but most liberal was as an insult that quickly led to chingasos, or blows, during recess at school. Pablo's mental gymnastics had set his resolve, and he took a handful of cards. Moises hadn't needed much convincing, and took several as well. Despite the reproach, I resisted. Looming large on my conscience was the fear of a Catholic God and its vengeance incarnate, my father. I revered them both, and years of indoctrination resulted in a dogmatic view of justice and doing the right thing. I followed their commands like a well-trained dog, ever the Boy Scout, but the cocktail of greed and peer pressure wilted my judgment. My safety cone orange wallet, embossed with my first name in black stitching, felt strangely heavy with a stolen card tucked inside. Contrary to Pablo's infallible 12-year-old logic, Cesar did notice a theft, but little came from it. No calls to parents, public accusations, or wailing of any kind. The only consequence came when Cesar confronted me in the hallway the next school day. Part of me that I held dear, a sense of right and justice, was taken from me then. I found lying was unnervingly easy, and I was surprisingly good at it, despite my racing heart and aching conscience. Cesar's smile waned. His eyes dimmed and fell to the tile floor, and he nodded. The guilt almost brought me to return the card, but instead, I waited four days and sold it at lunch for ten bucks. I usually spent Saturday nights at Pablo's house. In the heat of South Texas summers, we'd spend the entire night on the backyard trampoline, sleeping under the stars and getting eaten alive by mosquitoes. Mitzi, Pablo's 70-pound rust-colored chow-chow mix, chased our shadows beneath the trampoline's mesh floor and nipped at our toes if we strayed too far from the middle. Pablo's cousin Esteban was visiting from Mexico for the weekend. After a dinner of flautas, a fuchsia sunset welcomed us back to the trampoline. A sliver of metallic glint, what I assumed to be a plane's banking wings, could be seen over the horizon. Pablo took to his feet and bounced lightly on the trampoline and asked, Hey, have you guys heard of La Lechusa? What's that? I asked. No mames way. Seriously? Moises asked. La Lechusa's a witch, whispered Esteban. It takes the form of a giant owl at night, with wings so long that they look like airplanes when they fly. Pablo nodded, adding, My dad's seen them by the border patrol checkpoint at the Puente referring to the border crossing to Mexico. A big group of them, circling around. Mi tío Ramundo has seen them by burning buildings, said Moises. Puro pedo? Bullshit, I said in my broken Spanish. They're real. Esteban spoke softly, as if the acknowledgement would conjure the creature. At eleven, Esteban was small for his size, and his clothes ballooned away from his scrawny frame every time he jumped. Abuelo es curandero. Digo esto como un hecho. I stared at Esteban, eyebrows raised. My Spanish wasn't as good as theirs, and frequently failed me. I found that they would eventually translate their words for me, if I gave them a stupid look, and stayed silent for long enough. Esteban searched for the words in his head. My grandfather, he's a healer. He works with the spirits, and I help him too. We sat in silence. A gust of wind whistled through the slats of the wooden fence that sent a shiver up my spine. Esteban swallowed hard and continued. La Lechusa is made. 
there are two kinds, witches and the cursed. The witches make deals with the devil for power in exchange for souls. Cursed people are bound to the form of the owl to warn others. Both search for bad people, but one seeks to warn them, the other to mark them for the devil. If the devil likes what he sees, Lalachusa returns to take them. If someone encounters Lalachusa, the first thing they do is come to see mi abuelo. Many people say many things can get rid of Lalachusa, but only a curandero can break their hold on you. Esteban looked up to the sky, and we did too, which was empty, save for the last tendrils of daylight. Our attention was eventually pulled towards other interests. We forgot all about it, and yelled and jumped on the trampoline until midnight, when sleep overtook us. ¿Cuándo vamos para dentro? When are we going inside? Esteban asked. We always sleep out here, Pablo replied. Esteban sighed, and sat for a moment to consider this. He crossed himself, then ran across the yard into the house, emerging a short time later with something clasped in his hands that he tucked into a pocket of his jeans. Pablo turned to us and shrugged. He twisted in place, pirouetting up on one leg, and pretended to be attacked by something. He clutched at his throat and fell onto the floor of the trampoline, his tongue sticking out for full dramatic effect. Moises and I snickered and got comfortable. Crickets cried out in the night, as if to remind us that the things we couldn't see in the dark were still there, and always would be. My eyes fluttered shut, but sleep would not come. There's a sound you hear just before you fall asleep. You've heard it. You just never registered it. When you don't hear it for long enough, your body starts replicating it, hearing it in the exhaust lines of buses or electronic interference on TVs. That sweltering night on the trampoline was the last night I heard it. It's a high-pitched ringing, soft and fine, worn smooth like the sound of waves crashing in a seashell. It's the sound of your mind relaxing its grip on the world around it, and letting you fall down, down, wherever dreams will take you. The sleep sound came, then shattered like cheap glass as a whistle shot out through the night. The effect was a bungee pull back awake. Something was calling. Another volley of notes, playful, energetic, and wholly out of place. The notes alternated between short, light twitters and a long whistle, inviting a reply. I peeled open my eyes enough to see the backs of Moises and Pablo, their breathing deep and asynchronous. Something shiny caught my attention. It was Esteban's face. His eyes were wide, all-seeing marbles. What was that? I whispered. Maybe it was La Lechusa. Hmm. Pablo yawned. A low, resonant whistle followed, like a distant scream. We all sat up. The air was thick with the gray haze that muted the street lamps and stars, as if looking through a black plastic bag. We should go inside, I pleaded. No one objected. We just slid off the trampoline and groped our way through the night. I could feel every blade of grass beneath my foot, cold and sharp like dull knives. My foot grazed something wet and hairy. Mitzi lay motionless on the ground. Her long purple tongue hung out on the grass, just like Pablo's had earlier. Mitzi! Pablo screamed, falling onto her lifeless mass. Nothing. Wheezed a directionless voice in the dark. A vortex of wind pushed us to the ground. I wiped the dirt from my eyes until I could see the back fence of the yard. Perched there was a long, 
narrow figure draped in a tattered white cloak that shone like moonlight. It had a large, coned face, like a hastily erased drawing, made of shadows and streaks. John choked mid-sob. There was muttering. Esteban threw a circle of salt around himself, shouting a mixture of curse words and prayer. whispered into my mind. I heard the sound of static. My head reeled with a lifetime of images, scents, and sounds that whirled at a fever pitch. The sensory storm abated, and one sight rose from the gray depths above the rest. I was in the body of another boy in a hospital bed. My stomach was swollen, and a vice-like band of pressure cinched around my midsection. Sharp needles came next, then erratic slashes from deep within. Remorse and regret tore me up from the inside, along with something else, trying to claw out of my body. This came to me with the hypnotic certainty that only comes in dreams. That vision disintegrated into a strange city skyline. There was a smell of wet dumpsters and cigarette smoke. Again, I was in a foreign body, taller and older than that of the boy in the hospital, but the stomach was the same, hard and round, fit to burst. I was on the phone with someone, their voice familiar, but alien. Scratching and tearing filled my gut. I let out a low groan that stirred the waters of my mind and wiped out the vision until there was only black. I recognized this black. It wasn't the absence of things, but of light. I no longer embody that of another. I can feel I am me. It's late. My stomach is distended and throbs. Again, pain though this time my stomach splits open like a rotten piece of fruit and a faceless owl crawls out. It turns its head to me and its scream is my scream. I woke up sprawled on the grass, the rays of dawn drawing burning tears from my eyes. Moises was lying on his back with unblinking eyes, holding his stomach as if his life depended on it. Pablo was curled up under the trampoline, his damp shirt plastered onto his shivering body. Esteban was as I last saw him, still on his knees in a circle of salt. I thought the sun would never come. Never, Esteban cried. My muscles were knotted and tense, but my right arm was on fire. There, I found three lined scars. Pablo crawled out from under the trampoline, rubbing at a similar mark of only two lines. Moises was pale, and he still wasn't moving. His stomach was the size of a beach ball and his mouth looked like he was trying to decide between whether to cry or vomit. His arm had a single scratch. Esteban was the only one among us that was unmarked. When we commented on this, he said nothing. We went inside and waited for Pablo's parents to wake up. We would have cried, but we were too tired to do more than slump at the kitchen table. We looked older, faces etched with experiences far in advance of our years. Pablo's parents said nothing about the previous night but we didn't expect them to. Moises showed up for school on Monday, face ashen, his shirt stretched thin over his massive gut, but he went home early. The following week, the school called Pablo and I in to see the counselor. Moises was gone. His intestines had ruptured, and the doctors could do nothing. Esteban's grandfather offered to cleanse Pablo, but his parents refused. Rituals like that were blasphemy to my family, so the offer was never extended to me. Pablo and I stopped talking. I think I regret that the most. 
Then, before starting eighth grade, Border Patrol relocated Pablo's dad to a station on the Canadian border of New York, and I never saw him again. He reached out once. When I was in college, I got a call one night from an unknown number. It was Pablo. His voice was deep but fragile, with a smoker's cough. He sounded nervous, like there was something on his mind that he didn't want to bring up. He didn't want to talk about what he was up to. In fact, he kept the subject to childhood memories, the times we played video games in his room, pizza parties at school, and how much he loved to draw when he was younger. The line crackled. Remember? The owl? He whimpered into the receiver. I called the next day to check on him, but he never answered. I saw something white circling above my house. I don't sleep anymore. What passes for rest is me keeping my eyes closed until sunrise. My stomach feels like a balloon that's expanded up against broken glass. Something jostles my insides. I just have to keep my eyes closed. I know if I open them, I'll see the blank face of the owl, and then the screaming will start. Thank you for listening. Stay up to date on new episodes by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. You can leave feedback or just say hi on my website, howdoesthisend.co or at hdte.mp3 on Instagram. If you like the podcast, rate it if you can or share it. If you'd like to do more, you could join my Patreon. I'm on hiatus from nursing and I'm truly in love with storytelling. So any help is appreciated and would keep the stories coming. The link patreon.com slash how does this end is in the description special thanks to the patrons from this season alex cavazos linda clemens liz walker lucy mckay and tiffany Wu. may the sun warm your face each morning may your cup and bowl never be empty and may you forever be rich in heart sound effects come from freesound.org and epidemic sound music comes from epidemic sound artwork for this season was created by edgar lushaju edgar is a self-taught artist and freelance illustrator based in Southampton, England. With a background in graphic design and architecture, he creates digital and traditional illustrations in a variety of styles and mediums. Edgar wants his art to do more than just look good. He seeks to inspire contemplation and wonder while eliciting a reaction to create change for the better. Check out his work on Instagram and YouTube at drawhapa, D-R-A-W-H-A-P-A, or look for Edgar Lushaju, L-U-S-H-A-J-U, on LinkedIn and Facebook. The How Does This End podcast is a Stumblewell production and is brought to you for Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Be well, do good, and until next time.